Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is acclaimed writer Ivan Doig, author of This House of Sky and English Creek, many other books. He's out with a new book, Sweet Thunder, third novel in a trilogy of tales following the life of wordslinger Morris Morgan. With the backdrop of a conflicted America heading into the Roaring Twenties, Maury finds himself back in the brawling city of Butte in the middle of a conflict between miners and the Anaconda Copper Mining Company. Maury uses his sharp wit and walking encyclopedia knowledge to write scathing editorials against Anaconda for the fledgling union newspaper The Thunder and to keep himself one step ahead of trouble. Sweet Thunder mimics parts of Ivan Doig's own life. It's set in his home state of Montana. It focuses on the rush and clatter of a daily newsroom. That's where Doig began his writing career. And uh, Ivan Doig is in the middle of a publicity tour for Sweet Thunder. Next stop is Salt Lake City Public Library. That's tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. He'll be attending that event sponsored by the King's English Bookshop via Skype. And he joins us by phone from his uh, home, I believe, in uh, Seattle area. Ivan Doig, welcome to the program. Yes, good morning, Tom. Uh, let me ask you, uh, first of all, about uh, why why set this one again in Butte? You, uh, work song was set in Butte. Uh, maybe first, uh, you write interestingly that as you were growing up in the other part of Montana, uh, Butte was uh, sort of one of those, those uh, um, exotic places, <laughs> sort of like Vegas is today to, to us. Uh, that's right. Um, those of us out there in the uh, Lariat proletariat and the bunkhouses and hayfields and so forth of uh, rural Montana. We saw Butte as uh, what it was, a, uh, as metropolitan for uh, that part of the world. Uh, Butte was the uh, largest city of the northern Rockies uh, for uh, quite a lot of uh, the early 20th century, and it was foreign and tough, and miners uh, worked, uh, as we thought, uh, as if they were going down into gopher holes. Um, and so it was all, it truly exotic is a good word for it. But when I, um, started thinking what to do with Maury after he, uh, appeared on the scene in, uh, the whistling season as a very inventive teacher in a one room school, uh, I thought, well, why don't I put him into Butte with, uh, half the rest of the characters of Montana, Tom? <laughs> um, and Butte in that, period, the early uh, first couple decades of the 20th century, uh, it's really catnip for a, a novelist. There is so much drama and strife and, uh, you know, every, everything else uh, the imagination, uh, the writer's imagination can try to work with uh, happening there in what Maury says if America was a melting pot, Butte seemed to be its boiling point. <laughs> uh, so this was at the time, and this one I think is set in the winter of 1920, the previous one, 1919. Uh, the time, largest city in the Northern Rockies. Uh, it had some aspirations, straining to be cosmopolitan. Yeah, right, yeah. Yes, uh, the vaudeville circuit brought uh, Charlie Chaplin and Clark Gable and uh, so on uh, to town. Every politician... Uh, worth his uh, uh, worth his tonsils tonsils at all showed up there, gave speeches off the back of the train. Uh, the president of Ireland showed up, and uh, they would hold prize fights. There was immense money in Butte um, from the the copper barons, and so some of that was uh, flashed around. And sometimes the point is sometimes missed, Tom, that. Um, there were also high wages, comparatively, in Butte. Um, Butte, for the average working man, the unskilled, uneducated, hard rock miner, let's say, um, paid wages comparable to what? Strapping fenders on, uh, on uh, Henry Ford's cars on the assembly line. Some of the best uh, wages in the world. On the other hand, uh, they were some of the most dangerous mines in the world, too. And so uh, the tension of that, which so often played out in uh, the contention uh, in contest between the Miners' Union and uh, the Anaconda Copper Mining Company, again, is, uh, uh, to me, a very powerful drama, uh, a very American story. 
you've been, I believe, down in one of those shafts, so the phone booth size elevator I, down three thousand. Well, no, they're no longer running, and I'm not sure I could have gone down. Oh, down I see. Without, I, <laughs> uh, being blindfolded or something, uh, even if it had been operating. No, Carol and I, uh, my wife Carol, who um, is indispensable to my research, uh, taking photos and so on. Uh, we prowled around the uh, industrial remnants, I guess, the archaeology of uh, Butte uh, mining uh, through the uh, head frames and uh, around the elevator shafts and so forth. So I got into the elevator cage, but they did not drop me a mile into the ground okay, um, right, as they would right. have yeah. in the actual uh, working days when Butte had a couple of thousand miles of tunnels uh, beneath the actual city, as well as the uh, so-called richest hill on earth. And these shafts were directly beneath the, the, the streets of Butte, right? There's, it's, it's right there. Yeah, it's, yes. Yeah. Uh, they, they were, uh, you know, there were some sinkage of, of um, neighborhoods and so on. And ultimately, it was so honeycombed and dug out there that as uh, mining techniques uh, shifted and mine and the uh, copper veins played out, uh, open pit mining came uh, to some of those neighborhoods that uh, uh, had, had the shafts beneath them, and uh, the the neighborhoods were uh, simply chewed up and and um, you know went to slag as. Uh, uh, the, a colossal um, open pit mine, the Berkeley Pit, which uh, astronauts could, uh, the early astronauts could see from outer space, it's so huge, uh, came. And that is still kind of Butte's uh, legacy in a sense. It's now a super fun site because the uh, water uh, leaked into it when the, mine, when the pumps in the mines are shut off. And so there's this. Um, apparently deadly and um, perhaps unique <laughs> stew of chemicals uh, in the Berkeley pit. Yeah, we in, in, in Utah, of course, are very familiar with this this open pit mining. There's, yeah. there's one near Salt Lake, uh, which you, uh, you can also see from space, I, I believe. Yeah, right. Incidentally, Butte has a Utah connection early on, uh, which kind of helped to make its uh, fortune, Tom. Um, Marcus Daly was a foreman at a highly productive silver mine uh, at, at Alta. And in the late 1870s, uh, he went north to look over the mining properties in uh, Butte, which was kind of a uh, playing out gold and silver strike down at that time. But Marcus Daly was said to be able to see farther into the earth than any other man. And he saw something in a so-so silver mine there in Butte called the Anaconda, and he bought it. I uh, worked the silver out of it for a while. And one day in 1881, uh, his crew sent word up that they had hit what they called new material at the, uh, the 300-foot level. And, you know, anybody around mining will know that uh, around Butte. That was you know, barely scratching the skin of, of the earth of the Butte Hill. And so Daly went down to have a look, and they blasted into the new material. Daly picked up a chunk of the new material, uh, and it was copper ore, the peacock of rocks, it's sometimes called. It shows itself very vividly in some blues and greens and other pretty colors. And then and there, Mark Daly turned to his foreman and said, Mike, we've got it. <laughs> and what he had was the greatest copper deposit the world had ever seen uh, to that point. And the Anaconda mine became the leading producer in the copper boom as the world wired itself uh, for electricity across the next decades. And so by the turn of the 20th century, the Butte Hill, uh, largely out of that uh, Mark Daly discovery, was producing more than half of America's supply of copper. And the, you know, the money, the money was piling high. And the Anaconda Company, uh, it, it held a grip on Butte, on Montana, and that continued to at least to when you were coming up, right? You you had to, felt you needed to leave Montana to get into the newspaper business so that you wouldn't, as you said, wear the copper collar. Yeah, exactly right. As a uh, pushing, pushing idealistic 
young journalist at the Northwestern School of Journalism. Um, I looked back over my shoulder uh, to Montana and did not uh, like what I saw. Um, the Anaconda Company had bought up all the dailies in Montana except one. They could not get their hands on the, the Great Falls Tribune, which is family-owned. And so the other cities that counted, you know, Helena, Missoula, Billings, Livingston, on and on, they all had the Copper Press, as it was called, and that lasted for decades uh, until the late eight, uh, 1950s, when, again, I was a young aspiring journalist, and Anaconda decided to buy a radio station, Tom. <laughs> I don't mm. know. <laughs> Can you imagine them in yeah. competition with us? But uh, they put in to buy a radio station in Great Falls because they couldn't get a hold of the newspaper there. And there was a smelter in Great Falls and, and a smelter workers' union, and they wanted to have influence in the media there as they had everywhere else in Montana. And the Federal Communications Commission was really doing its job in those days. And so they asked Anacon, well, okay, what other media outlets do you own? Uh, well, it turned out that a Delaware holding company called the Fairmont Company indeed owned all these Montana newspapers. And the, uh, the FCC turned down that original um, application to, uh, to get into radio and extend the the uh, power of the Anaconda uh, Copper Press. Um, and But that was the first time it was publicly revealed as to how Anaconda was, was going about this. The Delaware outfit was full of executives from the Anaconda Company and Montana Power Company, which was also uh, allied with uh, uh, Anaconda in uh, uh, political power in Montana. But looking at the setting in the 19, early 1920s, previous book, 1919, Anaconda's powerful company has a grip on many things in Montana, and it's sort of a David and Goliath story. And I wonder, uh, I mean, there are echoes to today's world. I'm, I'm sure you've thought about a few of those. Well, I have. Um, I think I started uh, on all this. Um, I, this is sort of an in, inadvertent trilogy. Um it became deliberate at some point, Tom. Uh, the whistling season, I wrote about the the one-room school and Maury showing it this miraculous, showing up as this miraculous teacher and so forth, as a standalone book, and it's on its way to become my most popular uh, novel ever, I guess. That told me Maury was really a pretty good character to uh, hang on to, and so with other books in between. Uh, I then thought, okay, what can I do with Maury? Pitch him into Butte there with the, the uh, cast of characters. And then, you know, on it, uh, on it goes to uh, uh, this particular book. So, um, so yeah, the, the Maury and Butte story uh, just kind of grew that way on me, I guess. Mm. Uh, you have... You have some ink in your blood. You started out, I think, as an editorial writer, did you, in Decatur, Illinois? I did. Uh, back east in Illinois, as my folks in Montana uh, said. And so um, I was there in the newsroom uh, coming as we come up on uh, these grim anniversaries this year. Um, and some inspiring ones. I was there um uh, for, you know, during the, mar the march on Washington and uh, the Martin Luther King speech, and I was there um, on the uh, day of uh, uh, John Kennedy's assassination, and, and went through all that uh, at the newspaper as well. So um, I did not last terribly long at newspapering. I, uh, I've always thought, I think, uh, slower. Patterns. Um, uh, I went from newspaper to magazine to books in my career, but uh, it was it was kind of a exciting and rewarding, Tom, to realize that in being Maury's ventriloquist there on the on the page, I could still sit down and 
wrap out a pretty mean editorial against <laughs> the Anaconda Company whenever Maury needed one. And this is, and uh, these editorials are, they can be funny, they're scathing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it is yeah. very much, he's, he's, I don't know if you'd call it tilting against windmills, he's, it's very much a David and Goliath thing, but he, he believes in the power of the newspaper. Well, he does believe in the power of the newspaper, like the newspaper has to stand for something, and hue to the great old adage, adage of, uh, uh, afflicting, uh, you know, comforting, comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable, and uh, the, the comfortable was certainly the the uh, uh, Standard Oil Trust, as it began, that had laid its hands on uh, the Anaconda Copper Company. But uh, along the way, there's a there's a lot of humor uh, in Butte and in, in the book. I hope at one point Maury kind of sees this. Point um, uh, that his editorial page uh, should have something on besides these uh, attacks on Anaconda, uh, the barrage uh, against Anaconda all the time. And so uh, he initiates uh, uh, words from the Hill where the miners of various nationalities send in something, whether it's small anecdotes or uh, jokes or songs or whatever. And Butte is. Uh, <laughs> a very funny place in some sense because of the the miners' uh, humor uh, working in, you know, in uh, humor helps ward off dangerous consequences. Any of us who were in the military know a little about that. And so you you would have a cast of characters where they called each other, you know, Patty Six Toes or Straight Back Dan or Mike the Mule. And Maury... Um, runs these things sometimes in the original language in Finnish or Welsh or whatever. But uh, he ran. I had to run one in uh, in uh, in Irish. Well, actually, an Irish minor. And if you'll forgive my uh, not very vigorous attempt at uh, singing voice, he ran the limerick. My sweetheart's a mule in the mine. I drive her with only one line. On the ore car I sit while tobacco I spit. All over my sweetheart behind. <laughs> so, um, so in, in researching Butte, as I've done so much of uh, in these past years, uh, there's just so much material it's hard to choose. Mm. We're going to take a brief break. We'll come back with Ivan Doig. He's the author of uh, several acclaimed books. Um, and I, I believe, uh, Mr. Doig, a, a, a century end poll. This was from San Francisco Chronicle. Ivan Doig uh, was the only living writer at that point to uh, make both lists, nonfiction and fiction, um, for the uh, the best uh, books uh, in the West. And uh, you'll, you're probably familiar with This House of Sky, his acclaimed memoir, his first book, and The English, uh, English Creek and many others. Uh, the new book is uh, set in Butte, Montana. It's called Sweet Thunder. And uh, more with Ivan Doig following the break. This is folk singer Michael Jonathan inviting you to tune into the next broadcast of Wood Songs as we celebrate the guitar with three masters, Jack Pearson, Vicky Genfan, and Muriel Anderson. It's music and conversation on the next broadcast of the Wood Songs, Old Time Radio Hour. Friday nights at 11 on Utah Public Radio. And programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting the regional premiere of Peter and the Starcatcher with seven other productions through October 2013 in Cedar City. www.bard.org And by USU Human Resources. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu slash hr. How do you manage work-life balance? For many of us, life seems to have two speeds, fast and faster. The pressures at work are followed by the needs and demands at home. A recent study found that more than half of American workers felt overwhelmed by their workload at some point. Even so, one-third of those surveyed had no plans to make the vacation days they had available. 
No matter how energetic you may be, stretching yourself to the limit every day puts your health and happiness at risk. Frequent stress takes a mental and physical toll on your body. If you are often stressed out, you may feel irritated, worried, or depressed, and may have frequent headaches, backaches, or an upset stomach. A wise goal is simply to do what you reasonably can. This will help you strive for a balance between your work and home activities. If you can also manage to take time for yourself every day, you'll be on the road to a greater well-being. This is Dana Barrett for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. My guest for the hour is Ivan Doig, the acclaimed author of This House of Sky and English Creek and many others. He's out with a new book, Sweet Thunder, the third novel in a trilogy of tales following the life of wordslinger Maury Morgan. With the backdrop of a conflicted America heading into the Roaring Twenties, Maury finds himself back in the brawling city of Butte in the middle of a conflict between miners in the Anaconda Copper Mining Company. Maury uses his sharp wit and walking encyclopedia knowledge to write scathing editorials against Anaconda for the fledgling union newspaper, The Thunder, to keep himself one step ahead of trouble. Ivan Doig is in the middle of a publicity tour for the uh, recently released novel. His next stop is Salt Lake City Public Library. He'll be appearing there tomorrow night at 7 via Skype. And uh, that is sponsored by the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. Ivan Doig, I wonder if you could uh, tell us a little bit about the the immigrants. You uh, you treated them very fully in the previous uh, book, Work Song. Um, and uh, Maury and and Grace have uh, some some housemates, a couple of Welshmen. Uh, it's it's kind of a tell us about this mansion that he inherits. It's kind of a it's kind of a, a money pit. All right. Yes. Um, well, first of all, uh, let me start with the uh, the immigrants. I, I think Tom uh, writers endlessly have called Butte uh, in its smoky heyday the Pittsburgh of the West, the, the hill, the richest hill on earth, where all the copper was coming from, uh, full of smokestacks and equipment and so forth. But Maury and I prefer to dub it the Constantinople of the Rockies. Uh, because of this colossal mix of people, hard rock miners from several nations in in Europe, but by and large, came seeking some of those best wages in the world on the hill. And uh, the saying was, "Don't even stop in America; just come to Butte." And when they did, uh, you know, habit pound by blood, they formed their own neighborhoods settled in their own neighborhoods, Dublin Gulch for the Irish and Meterville for the Italians, and uh, not to be confused with Centerville for the Cornish and Fintown as a self-explanatory, Chinatown and so on. Um, So it's a very uh, rich mix of miners that sometimes added to the uh, conflict, rivalries within the miners' unions, as well as the conflict with Anaconda. And uh, out of that, though, I could see some very uh, uh, rich, and I hope humorous, possibilities, which I kind of condensed, uh, not wanting to deal with, you know, not wanting to just do the cliché of the, uh, what, the, the brogy Irishman, uh, and so I chose Welshmen, and they were a smaller segment in Butte. But I created uh, Griff and Hoop, who are old miners. Uh, there have been flash drillers together uh, back in the days before uh, the, they drilled with air, uh, i.e. before the, the big uh, uh, air drills came into the mines. These guys did it with with a uh, 10-pound sledge and, uh, and a bar. And so they are retired miners, they say, at least the tired part. And they've been around each other so long. They, Like old married couples, they've kind of grown to, to look alike, and they're bent toward each other like apostrophes, uh, Maury says. And Maury, who is a, deliberately a know-it-all, um, uh, a walking encyclopedia, he's sometimes called. Um, he doesn't always get what's going on in Butte. And so in both Work Song and Sweet Thunder, whenever he's really baffled by something going on in Butte, he turns to Griff and Hoop, and in kind of, I don't know what, short, zen-like 
uh, <laughs> dialogue, uh, they'll tell him in about uh, 15 or 20 words um, what the great mystery of the moment might be. So they're one set of characters, and uh, another character uh, is Samuel Sanderson, Tom, the the librarian, the vigilante-turned-librarian. And um, I had, again, uh, great uh, uh, fun with my imagination in, uh, in creating uh, Sanderson, who is determined to uh, have in Butte uh, the finest book collection west of Chicago. Mm. And he um, will cut some... Some bookkeeping corners, shall we say, in order to lay his hands on these rare books, which he grandiosely uh, puts on the shelves of the public library that he runs. You went back and found uh, pictures of the, of the original library there in Butte. This is based on, on fact. This is sort of goes to the the aspirations that Butte had. This is it a, really a grand they building. Turned, they turned down a Carnegie Library uh, in favor of doing their own fancier version. And uh, somebody who had made a, made a little pile of money um, in Butte Mining put up $10,000 uh, back around 1890 uh, in matching funds, and other uh, moneyed folks in Butte pitched in a comparable amount, and they built this library with a castle-like tower and the, you know, the wonderful arched uh, doorways, and inside, the, I describe the interior uh, of the library. It's very dear to Maury's heart. He sees it as a you know, kind of temple of literature. Uh, I describe the interior in both Work Song and, and Sweet Thunder uh, quite exactly with these wonderful dark wood beams and and uh, tasteful uh, green walls and wainscoting and and so on. So it's quite uh, quite gorgeous inside. Unfortunately, it burned uh, burned down twice in essence. <laughs> um, the first fire uh, was so severe that they recast some of the architecture. They took down the Gothic tower and put up some other kind. And then it uh, burned again in more modern times and has been replaced by a, thorough, a thoroughly modern uh, library. We're talking with Ivan Doig. He's author most recently of a new novel, Sweet Thunder. Uh, for the third time, he uh, goes back to the, the uh, silver-tongued uh, wordslinger uh, Maury Morgan, uh, who first appeared in The Whistling Season, and then in Work Song, and now uh, Sweet Thunder. They're back in Butte. This is the winter of uh, 1920 and going into the 1920s. Um, and uh, conflict between the Anaconda Copper Mining Company and the miners. And uh, Maury Morgan, in this uh, case, is writing scathing editorials for The Thunder, which is the newspaper of the Union. You're welcome to join this conversation with uh, Ivan Doig, if you would like, at 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. Your chance to interact with uh, Mr. Doig. Um, perhaps you've uh, been familiar with his uh, novels and uh, works uh, ever since this House of Sky. I know there are probably some people in the audience who, uh, for whom that'd be the case. 1-800-826-1495. Or you can reach us on email, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at uh, gmail.com. Uh, Ivan Doig, I'd, I'd like to um, to treat this as something that very interesting you say on your website, by the way, ivandoig.com. You don't think of yourself as a Western writer. And you, uh, you quote William Carlos Williams, the classic is the local fully realized words marked by a place. Yeah, uh, indeed so. It uh, seems to me that I'm... I'm trying to write about, uh, I would say, that larger country life, and I'm, I feel I'm doing what uh, writers so many times have done, which is to draw on uh, what we know, uh, the area we grew up in, and uh, for me, that's, uh, that's been Montana in most of my books, and so... Um, Tom, I think a, a writer's imagination uh, 
can and maybe most, in many cases ought to take up residence uh, other than, than where his physical self lives. And so um, I, I think, uh, you know, I look back at uh, great precursors, uh, Joseph Conrad, uh, I, I think, never really came ashore from those ships he was on. His imagination lived out there uh, when he was a first mate and so forth, and we got got his uh, his great writing from that. And, and I looked to Willa Cather, uh, another journalist, a, pre, uh, a journalist uh, forerunner of mine. Uh, she uh, moved on from the Midwest and the uh, Midwest frontier, as it was then, and became a very uh, uh, noted and powerful uh, magazine editor in New York. But when she turned to fiction, her imagination lived right back there in Nebraska. And so we have the, the wonderful stories there. And uh, William Faulkner, uh, you know, stayed uh, both in body and soul there in Mississippi as he created uh, Yaknapatawpha County. And so I, I feel I'm doing, trying to do something of that sort to uh, uh, have a... Uh, a country of of the mind, of the imagination, and populated by the uh, characters I've been thinking up for over these decades. Actually, more than five hundred of them now in in my novels, in uh, you know, in um, various size roles, and that's everybody who's mentioned in the novels. But sometimes, as in the bartender's tale, uh, somebody in the background. Uh, Simply been a bartender. He turns out to be the star of a, uh, of a book eventually. So that's uh, that's the way I I see and work at it. And I don't see why this has to be particularly Western. Mm-hmm. I was once on a TV show, Tom, and uh, a great uh, a show called uh, West Words, done here in Seattle, and Tony Hillerman and Rudolfo Anaya and Terry Tempest Williams and and I and a couple of others were on it. And uh, we had very nice segments, and we were asked about this. And I might have been a little grumpy that about being asked that, as I've been so many times. And I said something like, "Well, we're not just writing travel logs out here. We're, you know, we're, we're trying to do symphonic art use, using the whole symphony of life." And so um, um, that's that's what I see in answer to the the Western writer. Sandwich board tag. Do you do you is do you think there's a prejudice? Do you think there's a stereotype? Uh, you know, people other parts of the country sort of pigeonhole writers who write about the West in in that. You know, well, there, there's been uh, some of some of it in. I, I think it can't be denied in um, in media coverage. Um, I don't know that that writer that uh, readers do it so much. I. I get mail from all over the country. Uh, you know, and people come up to me uh, at readings. Uh, uh, people from all over the country. Uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, it's been a long. Uh, I don't know if you'd say it's a joke, and it's not only applies. I think only it does not only apply to writers, but perhaps to dramatic arts and ballet and music and so forth, too. That I think the musicians, rock musicians of maybe of the West Coast and the interior West have maybe said it best, you know, why do we play so loud? So they can hear us in New York. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, yeah, well there put. Is, there is some of that. Mm-hmm. One of the classic stories uh, uh, I had a little hand in, uh, the New York Times Magazine decades ago did a... Uh, Piece on Western writers and that whole bunch of us, and some photos of some people. And there, and in there was uh, uh, Wallace Stegner. The only thing was that uh, the cut line identified, uh, you know, the one of the dean deans of American writing, one of the great American writers, as William Stegner. And so I had a lot of fun uh, in writing uh, a later review of. Uh, Stegner's uh, book, uh, Where the Bluebird Sings, for the Los Angeles Times, beginning by saying, well, 
You know, west of the Hudson River, we pronounce that Wallace. Uh, hello, are you there? Okay, uh, sorry, we we had a little uh, phone uh, issue there, so I, I was uh, was hoping we hadn't uh, dropped you. Uh, here is an email that's uh, that's come in. By the way, uh, Ivan Doig is with us for the hour, another fifteen minutes or so. Uh, author of this uh, House of Sky and many other books, English Creek and uh, uh, Sweet Thunder is the new novel. Here's the email from Roger in Soda Springs, Idaho. Right. I was introduced to Mr. Doig by a friend who gave me a copy of The Whistling Season. My wife and I absolutely enjoyed the book, so much so that we would playfully argue over whose turn it was to read it. So we're looking forward to reading your latest book. And then the question, uh, Mr. Doig, what is your pattern to write a book? Do you always have the idea for the story in your head and then gradually coalesces while you're writing it? Or do you have most of the book set in stone in your mind before you begin writing? And uh, Roger goes on to say, thank you for writing stories worth reading. Okay. Uh, very good, Roger. I don't want to incite uh, uh, domestic arguments and everything else. So, you, know, uh, you and your wife maybe can flip a coin or something as to who gets uh, uh, gets a hold of Sweet Thunder next. The uh, pattern on um, uh, writing a book, a uh, project that usually takes me a, a couple of years at least, um, I do have the uh, initial, I do have an initial idea, um, and I have the time and place of the book uh, firmly in mind and present this to the publishing house in uh, in a fairly short prospectus, along with uh, uh, the characters, the main characters that I see um, are going to play out this idea. Um, I try to have in mind a single word that uh, um, will sort of sum up the personality of the book and in uh, uh, the whistling season, I, I, I would say it was it's compassion and forgiveness, as uh, Roger, you'll maybe remember, really comes into the story there towards the end. Um, and so I will work along at that uh, incident. But I'd say the pattern, what, maybe coagulates as I go along, uh, working on it, doing so many words a day. Uh, currently, it's uh, uh, two triple-spaced, the equivalent of two triple-spaced typed pages a day. It's, it's about 400 words or so. And I think of, uh, you know, I turn the, the imagination loose, uh, uh, what could happen. Uh, back there in the whistling season, uh, and I'm forever delving into the research I've piled up over the years in file cards and uh, manila file folders and books and so forth. Um, I remembered or came across an interview, I think for English Creek or Dancing at the Rascal Fair, when I was asking people about uh, their one-room school experiences that early. And a woman told me of she and her sister riding to school, uh, riding horseback to their one-room school. It got get kind of boring sometimes, so we'd turn around in our saddles and race each other. Well, I came across that and thought, well, okay, I think what this whistling se- what the whistling season needs here is a backwards horse race. We'll we'll just put Paul and his opponent sending backwards in the saddle and see what happens. And it becomes a kind of a centerpiece of the book, uh, uh, out of what really uh, a random but yet relevant uh, uh, detail of the time. So that's the thing; it accumulates, and uh, I try to have the book come out at the end to have to well have that click of a well-made box that Yeats told us <laughs> poetry should have that the ending should somehow chime with where the book started out we are talking with Ivan Doig acclaimed author of this house of sky and English Creek and many others his newest book is sweet thunder uh, set once again in uh, Butte, Montana. We're uh, heading into the uh, Roaring Twenties. There's labor strife, and, and uh, Maury Morgan makes another appearance. He's writing uh, editorials against the Anaconda Copper Mining Company for the uh, labor newspaper, 
uh, the Thunder. We're going to take another break. We'll be back with Ivan Doig. You can join the conversation, as did Roger. Thanks for that, Roger. Uh, by email at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, or you can join us on the phone, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. By the way, our post on uh, Ivan Doig, uh, the Star of India Indian Restaurant in Logan liked our post. So someone down there likes uh, Ivan Doig's works. Uh, you can join us on any of those three, 1-800-826-1495 or by email to upraxis at gmail.com. Just a few more minutes, though. We'd uh, love to get your question or comment in. Brief break. Back with Ivan Doig. Did you know that students can enhance their online education when they connect with their professors? A live chat or a phone interview of an exam helps the faculty member know what challenges students are facing. It also gives them something to draw from when asked to write a letter of recommendation. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival presenting Shakespeare's Richard II with seven other productions through October 2013 in Cedar City, www.bard.org. And Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan now open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits and lunch sandwiches. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. A few more minutes left with Ivan Doig, acclaimed author of uh, several novels, uh, several uh, nonfiction pieces. His newest novel is Sweet Thunder. It's a novel set in Butte in the Roaring Twenties, and he goes back to one of his favorite characters, uh, Maury Morgan, who in this case is uh, writing scathing editorials against the Anaconda Copper Mining Company in a labor uh, conflict for the labor uh, newspaper, The Thunder. That takes... Uh, Ivan Doig back to a bit of his biography uh, as a newspaper man. That's how he uh, started out in Decatur, uh, Illinois. You can join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And Ivan Doig, I wonder if we could take you back uh, even further in your biography, uh, I'm sure that, um, you know, at least uh, some percentage of people that uh, pick up your books, come to your readings, um, connect with with you because they have a very similar background. It's the, you know, it's the small town, barely on the map, you know, the where, where you grew up out in the ranching company. Um, my my grandparents, in, in fact, uh, met while they were working on a ranch in Wyoming. It's uh, you know, you yeah. you find that all over. And there's 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 that place that shapes you. Right. She definitely did you. Well, I'm I'm chuckling because I'm thinking back to when I toured Utah uh, under the uh, wonderful auspices of the uh, State uh, Humanities Council uh, there. And uh, gave talks in uh, what Vernal, Vernal, and Junction, and so forth. Yes, uh, places which were I was told you know don't usually get uh, visiting talkers of, of the sort. And I found there, as I have throughout the the West in more than thirty years now of uh, doing this sort of thing, that you know people would come up and say, "Well, your grandmother was my grandmother." <laughs> Uh, in the way she talked and uh, things of that sort. So um, I uh, I really work hard at, and I must have heart and soul into uh, presenting um, the working class Westerner. Uh, that can be, you know, it's sometimes been a forest ranger, uh, sometimes it's been a sheep herder, a cowboy, a uh, bartender, uh, on, on and on. Uh, and the Butte Miners uh, certainly represented that. And so I have uh, talked with people uh, uh, endlessly down through the years, traveling Montana and elsewhere, 
um, tape recording their experiences on the farms and ranches and other work venues of the West. And uh, I always carry a notebook. I'm always eavesdropping into my pocket notebook, uh, even in airports. Uh, the Salt Lake Airport has probably presented me a, with a character or two, possibly, <laughs> as I've been through, been through there. Um, I really, I've used the, the uh, big University of Wisconsin uh, wonderful dictionary project, the Dictionary of American Regional English, which is uh, in six volumes, a colossal undertaking. Uh, it's almost like the, the Oxford uh, Dictionary, uh, has caught the lingo of America, how, how people talk in various parts. And, you know, where do we call them hotcakes or flapjacks or uh, pancakes or, or whatever, just a very quick example. And so sometimes I will uh, warm up for the day by reading uh, eight or ten pages of the Dictionary of American Regional English just to see how the language is formed. And apparently that works some because now I'm in the thing <laughs> quite considerably uh, myself. I, and so I, I have my own citations in there as uh, uh, the language does this kind of uh, magical circle of dance. Yeah, yeah, that is a, a magical circle. I just have a couple of minutes left. I, yeah. I, I just, uh, just briefly uh, going back to your your grandmother. I, I responded to uh, just it was just a line in in your website in your biography, and then there's a picture of your of your grandmother when I think she and your father came to live with you in Seattle. Uh huh. Um, this this picture of her name is Bessie Ringer, I think, right? And yeah. and you you write uh, in her twenties, she. Uh, she, I don't know where she's coming from, but she gets off a train with her infant child and her unemployed husband, and they they build a life out there in 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 Montana, and that's that's very local, but it's very universal as well. Well, it is. Uh, there are what there are hundreds of thousands of those stories. Uh, my grand my grandparents lip into, without participating in uh, financially, uh, the great homestead boom uh, into Montana uh, in the uh, the first uh, couple of decades of the 20th century. It, in a sense, it was the last great American frontier as a quarter of a million people flooded into a state which uh, had a population uh, uh, no more than than a quarter of a million when they started, and they took up homesteads. They took up 30 million acres, Tom, um, and so areas the size of the state of New York. Uh, ultimately, you know, the total uh, was homesteaded, and then the weather turned on them again. Powerful human drama. Um, prices plunged after World War One. And so uh, uh, a lot of people did persevere, went to one-room schools. I still find people who are very proud of that, uh, of that uh, prairie and, and plains uh, uh, launch into life. So you're right. Your, your Wyoming forebears are right in there with many, many others that I'm very honored to hear about when people lean over the book as I'm inscribing it and say, well, you know, uh, my grandparents did that, too. <laughs> and, of course, your work is, is wide-ranging, uh, uh, not only uh, that part of Montana, but uh, Butte and many other places. The, the new novel is Sweet Thunder. It's the third in what has become a trilogy featuring uh, Maury Morgan, the uh, silver-tongued wordsmith. He's uh, now in the middle of a conflict between the Anaconda Copper Mining Company and the uh, Labor Union, writing editorials for the uh, Labor newspaper, The Thunder. Uh, Sweet Thunder is the book, and Ivan Doig will be uh, appearing tomorrow evening via Skype at the Salt Lake City Public Library. That's 7 p.m. Uh, that's Tom, sponsored. Uh, Tom, we yes. might check that, whether uh -huh. it's at the library or the bookstore. I'm okay. not sure. I'm only the Skype avatar here. Oh, okay, I will, uh, I'll double-check that. Okay, thanks. And we'll correct that on the website if it's not, uh, if it's not true. Good. In any case, it's 7 o'clock, and it'll be uh, appearing uh, via Skype. Uh, Ivan Doig, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you, Tom. A terrific job. And uh, for producer Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening. 
Utah writer Gina Wickwar. It's a given. Most of us, at some point, waited or bus tables. We were probably either earning money for college or working while in college and gratefully took a job at a diner or a restaurant or some other eatery. We were paid minimum or below minimum wage and, over the course of our lives, never again worked as hard as we did then. The only thing that made the work bearable were the tips. On a good day, you could double your pay with nice big ones. And were you ever excited? But when you didn't get tipped, or the tips were tiny, even after pouring five refills of iced tea and wiping down the high chair because Junior was lathering it with ketchup, you were miserable and felt like an utter failure, or worse. Now, since all of us can remember that hard schlepping work, the low pay, and those grinding hours, why is it that so few of us tip or tip poorly? We've gone out to dinner, hired a babysitter, and have ordered a nice meal. What is it that makes us diners forget the young girl who's pouring the water, the young man who's removing the dirty cutlery, or the gentleman who's showing us our table deserve a little extra for their efforts? It may come as a shock to many who've not worked at a restaurant since college or high school, but wait persons—the politically correct term these days—do not get to keep your entire tip. They share it with the bus people, with the kitchen staff, and occasionally with the hostess. So your little tip is spread among a lot of folks. In most of Europe, the menu points out that the gratuity is included in the price of the meal. Sometimes in this country, the menu notes that an automatic tip is included when there are six people or more being served. But for the most part, Americans are on the honor system about giving tips, and we fail that test pretty miserably most of the time. There are a few pockets across the country where tipping is generous. Utah is not one of those. I still have acquaintances that are barely doling out ten percent if they tip at all. They must have been left behind somewhere in the 1950s when a state dinner cost a buck fifty and gasoline was twenty-nine cents a gallon. They need to get real and move into the 21st century. Eighteen to twenty percent is now considered a satisfactory tip, which means the tip rate is just keeping up with inflation. The minimum wage is still pretty minimum, at least in most states. So most restaurants rely on customer tips as a way of increasing their workers' income. And please remember, many of those workers are our kids. If we don't help them earn more money by tipping generously, we either pay more for their tuition, they pay more for their tuition, or we all pay more for their student loans. I think the choice is pretty clear. Remember, twenty percent—that's really easy to compute, even without your iPhone. This is Gina Whitmore. Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD One eighty nine point five Logan, KUSK HD One eighty eight point five Vernal, KUSL HD One eighty nine point three Richfield, KUST HD One eighty eight point seven Moab, and KUSU FM HD One ninety one point five Logan.